so for today's episode, what's the question we're asking? <laughs> the question we're asking is, what is our topic for today? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're both really underprepared for this. <laughs> so, you know, in some ways, this is vintage ITL. After uh, after a few episodes where we, you know, we were really on top of it preparation-wise, you know, we, we have no idea what we're doing this time. How's life, Streeter? <laughs> Uh, you know, living and thriving. The vibe feels off a little bit these days. I don't know about you. In this sort of mid-pandemic, mid-coming out of the pandemic world, everyone's kind of uh, everyone's kind of just lounging around, I guess, waiting for the next thing. No one's really sure what the next step is going to be. <laughs> the, you know? the, the next variant? Yeah, either the next variant or the next open up or the next booster. It just seems in the pandemic, it was very clear, like stay home. But now it's just kind of like, all right, so now what? You know, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess just wait for the next concert. It's, it's like everything's like in a half measure, right? In the middle of the right, pandemic, right. there were no concerts, and now there's like half concerts, which is kind of right, in some ways right. more frustrating. Yeah, and it, it does make the planning a bit tougher. You feel funny planning too far ahead because you just don't know. <laughs> yeah, but on the um, other hand, you can't just like stay at home and start a whole new side project like we did with this. Right, right. I don't know about you, but the the vibe of the the world kind of just feels off. Yeah, well, I started rehearsing this week for the first time in mm. one of my orchestras, or both my orchestras. So, I mean, our last last concert I played was middle of February or so, and it was great. It was a great concert, Sibelius Symphony Two. We were rehearsing <laughs> the the all Beethoven program for our <laughs> for our Beethoven two fifty concert end of March. <laughs> COVID canceled Beethoven. Yeah, so that didn't happen, but. Yeah, no, it was just funny being all back in the same room again and playing. Dude, I like forgot how to count rest. <laughs> <laughs> I've been practicing a lot through the pandemic, but I let me assure you, I have not been practicing counting rest. <laughs> so yeah, that's hardcore, uh, man. If you if you did that, I I, I too had a had a an orchestra concert a, a few weeks ago, and that was that was oh. also odd, and it was fun. Was for, this uh, in Indianapolis? Yep, the Indianapolis Symphony. No, th- this was this um this a... was a festival orchestra, um, which is oh, cool. it's comprised of members of the symphony and the chamber orchestra. Nice. Okay. Um, we did a thing down at the at this church, and it was with a full choir, and it was a decent sized orchestra. So it was a, it was a lot of people on on stage. We are going to start rehearsals in a couple weeks for concerts in December. It's going to be with the Indianapolis Chamber Orchestra and and the soprano Angela Brown. I don't mm-hmm. know if you know her, but. Um, this is, I think this is going to be like a pretty big concert. So I'm really curious how all that goes COVID-wise, you know. Is vaccinated required? And it's required for us, the musicians, I think. Sure. But I'm not sure about the, the audiences, and I'm not sure if there's any like seating like requirements. Like, do they have to be, um, mm. how, how far apart do they have to be seated? And I'm also curious, like, how well the hall fills up, you know? Everything is so unsure, right? <laughs> yeah, no, interesting. I, I mean, I had a first. I did a first earlier this week for one of my orchestra rehearsals. It being the first rehearsal back, I volunteered to be the vaccine card checker. <laughs> I felt like weirdly, weirdly authoritative. It was, it was, it was kind of fun, actually. It was like being the RA of a dorm. Like, <laughs> so who, whose cards were you checking? All the musicians. <laughs> but no one checked mine, which is, yeah. which is kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The system was not fully checked, you know. Yeah, yeah, they, they had no one checking the checker. are rolling again and with performances come program notes <laughs> reader and i understand you have 
some some point to make on that matter? Yeah, well, I guess just program notes were on my mind because you were telling me that you had to write program notes for for your um, concert, and I was looking over what you wrote, which was fun. And then also, I think that same day, if not the next day, I had a little back and forth with someone on Twitter about program notes. So I've been thinking about program notes. His name is Conrad Tao. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He's a he's a wonderful pianist and composer. He was tweeting about how program notes are sort of in certain contexts they can overdetermine how an audience hears a piece of music. The example that he gave was that he had recently played Mozart K488, which is his piano concerto. I think it's an A major. Yeah, the 23rd piano concerto. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of the few concertos where, where Mozart actually wrote out a cadenza. Got it, so yeah. Traditionally, a cadenza is, is actually improvised by the soloist, and, and composers don't often write them out. It's like a thing that happens at the end of the movement. Mozart actually wrote his own cadenza for this concerto, and it's often played. And in the program notes, that was mentioned. But Conrad Tao actually was playing his own cadenza. So, you know, he was bothered by the fact that all these people in the audience were thinking that this was Mozart's cadenza. And then when he was reading the the reviews, people were saying his interpretation of Mozart's cadenza was really interesting. Program notes, we don't really think about it, but they have so much power. And like this example, I loved it because it's, it's going from like what people are hearing all the way to the reviews, right? If you put program notes in front of someone, they may actually not even really listen to what's going on. It may be over-determining what they're, what they're sort of primed to listen for. What I liked about what you're doing is that you are writing the program notes for your concert, and I'm a, I'm a big believer in this. But obviously, this is not really a scalable thing for you know symphonies and all the concerto right, performances right. that people have to go around. Like You just have to reuse program notes because every concert kind of needs them. Or so we right. think. I'm not sure if you would agree with that or not. But hmm. so program notes are reused, and then the kind of cliches of music writing are kind of passed around. I think humans underestimate how suggestible we are. What are your thoughts on this kind of problem that's inherent in program notes? I think. Yeah, it's funny what you say. How um, easy it is for our minds to be deceived, or I guess deceived is not the right word, but how fickle they are, right? Like, yeah. I mean, the classic example. Like, on the count of three, don't think of the color yellow. One, two, (laughs) three, right? Mm -hmm. So at music school, I always really respected, and I always thought it should be required that you write your own program notes for your own recitals. And also, come on, it's not that hard. You don't (laughs) perform that many recitals. You only perform a few throughout your four years there. And you're taking all these music history, music theory, musicology classes and all that. So you can do it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so there's that. Um, I always love how in the San Francisco Symphony, the, <laughs> the program book, it's always like, I mean, there's the program notes, but it's always next to the big page of sponsors. And it's just like <laughs> all the companies you hate. It's always those like Goldman Sachs and Chevron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And of course, you know, the PR, you know, it's San Francisco Symphony is proud to partner with Exxon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, like I, I do think most program notes are bad, right? Yeah. And, Maybe that's just a symptom of you have to write them so much because every concert needs a program book because every concert is paid for by Exxon. So, <laughs> so, so they have to. And you can't somewhere. just have a sponsor book. You do need. You need to, exactly. You need, you need to <laughs> pretend like you're making an effort here, right? You, you need. Book. You need to pretend like you're tagging the sponsors onto the program, not vice versa, which is what's actually happening. Yeah. <laughs> so there's definitely that. Yeah, like the program notes I wrote, and you were kind enough to like read over and take a look at and such. I thought like. I did like a fairly good job of making them fun and stuff. Because again, like the classic program note, it falls into the discussion we had like at the very beginning of this podcast, which was all these sort of arcane performance practices that have been around for a long time that really are kind of outdated, but we keep doing them. And sadly, it's not always for the better. 
we've talked about applause. We've talked about dressing up for concerts. We've talked about how you go on stage, you tune, the audience claps, you bow, and then for the next two hours, you pretend the audience doesn't exist, <laughs> right? No other genre of music does it that way. Like rock concerts don't do that way. Jazz concerts don't do it that way. I think Program Notes falls into this category of just, you know, things we've always done and things we've always done are things that are always hard to change. <laughs> yeah. I had a little back and forth with Conrad about this, and I was pointing out to him that the, I called it an institution of of the music lover, but he, he said he would rather prefer it called the aesthetic or the identity of the music lover. Obviously, there there are sort of music lovers in the sense that we love music, but there are people who actually are just, you know, they're, they're people who write program notes, they're people who are, you know, critics, they do reviews. Yeah. They're the ones who get caught up in these cliches, like, you know, who was Hector Berlioz is the... Is the <laughs> Is a joke that we always go to, but there's certain like tags that you can easily call up that yeah. everyone goes to in music writing. Like, you know, Mozart is elegant, Beethoven is passionate, Schubert right, is sublime. Right. There are all these things. And now it forces the music into a box where now if you wanted to play Mozart in a way that is not elegant, because that's just how you feel it should go on that day, then this is a case in which the program notes have, have overdetermined right, your interpretation, right? right? And it's a problem that I'm not sure how to solve because, like you said, every program mm-hmm. needs a program book at you know these concerts, and it's easy for us to write program notes for our own, for our own concerts. And I, I do that for like all my solo recitals and chamber music concerts. I, I write my own program notes, and I try to make them funny and interesting, and and not sort of full of the cliches yeah, of music yeah. writing. And I also try to to not say too much about what the audience can expect to hear. To some degree, you have to kind of describe the music a little bit. But, I, I, you know, you get these long, elaborate, you know, essays on every aspect of the music that you're going to hear yeah. and, like, what to listen for. And and it's just, it's priming the, the audience yeah. too much, right? Well, I think Program Notes, too, it should just be the role of a curator at an art museum, right? Just, I think, end of the day, it should provide the context that helps you have the correct perspective to start to try to understand art (laughs) and i think they should be like short they should be like blurbs for the music right right you shouldn't try to prove to anyone how smart you are right and how much you know about the music right they're there to listen to the music you should give you can give them a sort of interesting and sort of catchy funny kind of blurb to get them in the right headspace like you said yeah but you know this is not the place to do this sort of musicological analysis and um yeah i don't know also, maybe like talking at concerts would, would help. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the pre-concert lecture yeah. or like the mid-concert lecture. I mean, not yeah. lecture in the not literal lecture, sense, but, uh, but yeah, the yeah. talk. Yeah, I found like a, yeah, a conductor named Chad Goodman, brilliant, brilliant musician. So he's, he I knew him because he was a trumpet player. He went to Eastman, but he was one year ahead of me. I, I was at Indiana, he was at Eastman. But we um, would always bump into each other every summer at like music stuff, trumpet, brass, workshops, festivals, um, that whole thing. So I got to know him pretty well. Really brilliant guy, fantastic trumpet player, but he got into conducting in grad school. And he's now, he was the assistant conductor of two Michael Tilson Thomas at the symphony for a little while. Now he's the conducting fellow at New World in Miami. He's going to some really cool places and stuff. Uh, Anyway, yeah, he would always talk about the piece before playing it, or he would try to at least, when like concerts where he had full uh, creative control. And he always said the most important piece of advice you can tell anyone that does that, keep it under a minute. No one wants to yes. hear more than a minute. Of, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yep. Yeah. Keep it under a minute and then get to the piece. I also think, I mean, I don't know if you would agree with this, but keep it under a minute and also keep it personal. Yeah. I think that's the big thing that 
program notes miss out. They create this relationship with the audience that's one to zero. Like, like he's, I like what you said before that it's like the audience doesn't exist yeah. in so many in so many classical music concerts. And I think the the great advantage that you can have in a in a recital if you're speaking is that you can actually get the audience on your side. Yeah, it makes it more fun for you as a performer, and it's and. You know, when I've been in the audience, on the other end, it's been more fun for me. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying like, you know, Wikipedia facts about a piece, if you can, <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> maybe like, yeah, like you, you can like, you can like say, days, that's <laughs> yeah, just, just give exactly. an iPad that just pulls up the link. <laughs> yeah, <Wikipedia. laughs> yeah. right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, the program notes are just like five QR codes for all the pieces that you're playing, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, it, you know, it's so pointless nowadays. Just yeah. instead of that, I mean, you know, if one or two of them are interesting. You can you can list you can say that, but I think you should say something about how this piece, why why you're interested in this piece, or yeah, how this piece yeah. makes you feel, or or how you're approaching this piece differently. Mm-hmm. Keep it under a minute and keep it personal. And same with the program notes. Keep it short. Don't write an essay. This isn't musicology class. Yeah. And and keep it personal there too, because right. again, like you know, everyone has Wikipedia. So, like, why do I need to read your program notes in your booklet no, if, it exactly. ha- if it has nothing to do with you personally exactly So, Streeter, I am in the market. <laughs> I am in the market for a new digital piano. And hmm. I've been doing some shopping lately, and it, it is endlessly frustrating. It is so annoying. So, so to set the stage, I live in an apartment in the city. As much as I would love to have an acoustic upright piano or grand piano or something, it just out of respect to roommates <laughs> and neighbors and, yeah, right. If you're in a big city, it makes more sense to have like a nice digital piano. And some of the digital pianos now are really nice, and they've come down in price so much over the past 10 years. And and I, I have a decent digital piano, but it's pretty old and stuff, and I've gotten a lot of use out of it, but I, I need to like upgrade it to like one of the nice console digital pianos. And some of them are wonderful. They have wooden keys. They have an action that feels great and stuff. All the big digital piano makers, like Yamaha and Kawaii and... Those are the two I, I like the most in, in that world, actually. What's hilarious is how much uh, engineering is put into them to make them sound like a flawed acoustic piano to the point <laughs> where when you hit the pedal of a digital piano, they'll even hear like the sound of the hammers lifting off the piano strings, which is what happens in a real piano. Oh, man. Yeah, right. So they really go to like quite some lengths to like mimic the the mechanics and like the sounds you hear of a of a real grand piano. So so I've been shopping and such, and it is so frustrating, Streeter. I've been going <laughs> to different piano stores, dealers, retailers, trying out pianos, which is always a ton of fun because every piano is different. And of course, when I'm there, I try out like some of the really nice concert grands because <laughs> I'm there and it's fun. Before you get too stuck in this, would it be worth differentiating for the lay listener the, the difference between a keyboard, as most people might think of it, and a digital piano? Yeah, yeah. So a keyboard is what you use with your Mac to. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> a keyboard has a space bar, and um, <laughs> um, yeah. no. Uh, so when you think of a keyboard, you probably think of like a rock concert, like a big slab, right? That's like right. a that, of keys and stuff. That's like on a stand, and it's very portable. 
but a digital piano um, is there are some that are kind of like that, but more, most digital pianos are they look if you didn't know any better and you looked at it, you would think it's an upright piano or maybe like a bit thinner of an upright, but it sells like that frame, that body of an upright, and you put it up against a wall sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But it's completely digital. There's no strings in it. There's no strings in it. But a lot of them feel, again, very close. Like they'll even have hammers in it that like hit like a almost like a rubber bar or something that has a sensor on it. So it actually feels and responds close to piano. It will never be exactly it, but it's close. So yeah, that's what I'm kind of in the market for, those digital pianos. And... It's so frustrating because supply is so low for all these digital pianos for two main reasons. One is the pandemic itself. It's a good thing, I guess, but demand for pianos skyrocketed. It's at an all-time high. It's never been higher. Hmm. When when lockdown happened and people wanted to get back into an old hobby or start a new one, everyone bought pianos, especially digital pianos, (laughs) but pianos in, in general as well. So... They just fly out the door, and if you go on the internet, setting up like the big piano selling sites, even Amazon stuff, they're like sold out of a lot of stuff. So there's that, and then there's also the supply chain and like the chip shortages and all that <laughs> stuff. And like I even asked the owner of the Kauai store I went to, and he goes, "Yeah, we have a bunch of these, but they're apparently anchored off the shore of Port of Los Angeles, and it'll be months before they get in." Are you hip to how the supply chain is for getting a regular like upright piano or, or a grand? I, I guess with a grand, the demand is so much less that that problem kind of takes care of itself. What about like upright pianos versus digital pianos? Well, even grand pianos, there's a bit of a shortage as well. Just oh, really? Okay, never mind. Because <laughs> demand went up for not as much, not as big a percent increase for digital pianos and uprights, but still throughout the pandemic, hmm. like all the rich people who had big homes <laughs> uh, always wanted a piano and now got one. Yeah. Right? So... <laughs> It's kind of crazy and just annoying, but but again, I, I guess it's good that everyone's everyone's buying pianos, right? Uh, yeah. When you're trying these out, what are you looking for? So in the land of digital pianos, it's very much a compromise, some way or another. See, the model like I really like is one of the Kwai models, and basically, I, I like the action on Kwai's, the actual key action, a lot. Some people don't though, and it's kind of interesting because the keys definitely. They feel almost less refined, like they bounce a bit more. They rattle a little bit more on the way up after you push them down. And you kind of feel a bit more of like the actual mechanics of the keys happening underneath your fingers. You almost feel the hammers hitting the strings when you're playing. So it's almost like how some people like to drive a manual transmission. Not only do you have like more control over the car and the gears, but you actually like feel a connection to the car and then the road, right, when you're driving. So it's it's not like good or bad. Some people like love quiet. Some people just don't like quiet that much. So, yeah. So, but anyway, but in regards regards to the digital pianos, it's yeah, it's tough because it's there's like three main attributes to a digital piano: the the sound quality, like the actual sound of the samples that are recorded. I mean, you actually hear it through headphones or the speakers. The key action, how the keys feel, like how close are they, and do you like the way they feel? And then the third is like. The overall build quality of the whole thing and so of the player the companies in the digital piano world all the models they never have all three you always have to kind of take a loss on one of them and the one i sort of decided to take a loss on was like the overall build quality i'd rather have a good sound sample i want the realistic hammer action for the pianos i would love a great build quality and stuff of the whole like console but if i'm going to take a loss somewhere I, I think i'll take a loss there and and stuff, but still, it's just a game of compromises when you're buying digital pianos.
anyways, we were talking about pianos and my piano, you know, frustrations. But I think we should bring up that the Chopin piano competition just wrapped up a couple weeks ago. And it's basically the biggest piano competition in the world. Like even just to get invited is a huge honor. It's a big deal. It's it's funny when you look on Wikipedia, the list of people who won and then got second and third place. It's like all the biggest names in the piano world. Martha Argerich, Mauricio Pellini, Christian Zimmerman. <laughs> Even the people that got second place, like Mitsuko Uchida, I think got second place one year. And It's a very impressive list of artists. And and yeah, it was delayed because it's it was supposed to be in 2020, but spoiler alert, you know, got, got delayed. It only been canceled two times in the history of the competition. And one was like 2020 and it said postponed due to COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the other one was like 1940 postponed due to Nazi occupation of Warsaw. <laughs> <laughs> no, but was cool. Um, we've been people to kind of criticize our organizations for screwing up their digital attempts in every way possible, right? Like it's, we've talked about the New York Philharmonic who is put up a digital concert for just like a day and then took it down. It was on YouTube, then off YouTube, and other people putting up paywalls to get people to watch their stuff. I know the Boston Symphony puts things on their website just for like a few days and stuff. Yeah. But the Chopin piano competition, I think just did everything right. The filming quality was so good, the way they filmed all the performances and all the rounds and stuff. It was just really enjoyable to watch with all the camera work. The interviews they did with musicians and judges and audience members, like between performances and stuff, and like a little, little like TV set, like a lounge they had, like off stage, was really great and really cool, and like really accessible for people that are really into classical music or like really into Chopin, or people that are maybe watching this for the first time. They just they just knew kind of audience would be that varied, and they just did a good job talking about the music and such. It was just really well organized. It was so easy to find on YouTube and they would tell you, all right, you know, the rounds are for three and a half hours tomorrow. Here's who's playing. But it was all on YouTube, so it was all completely free. And it's some of the best music being performed in the world. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought it, it looked it looked really good. I, I like that little set that you said. If you watch like soccer, like halftime, they cut <laughs> yeah. to like the set where like analyzing you know, yeah. the, the, the plays and the out-of-bounds stuff. And like, Yeah. So... I, I kind of just picked around and, and picked out a few performances and, and took a listen. Um, you, you didn't watch the whole thing, like all like 38 hours of it that's on there? Yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't quite do my homework that hard. What did you think about the, the actual music part of it? I mean, yeah, there are some just brilliant young... I mean, it's kind of cool because most of the names, like some I maybe recognized or like sounded familiar, but most of them I hadn't heard before. It's a lot of very young players that are just getting onto the scene. And um, yeah, there's some... Fantastic playing. And what's cool is the final round is usually with an orchestra. So you, you play the Chopin, Nocturnes, Ballades, all that stuff, you know, the leading up to the final round. But in the final round, you have to play some of the Chopin orchestral stuff. And I think so you had a has, choice between the two concertos. One, the, one of them is in E minor and the other one is maybe in F minor. Yeah, I think and that's I think you it. Pick, you had to pick between one of the two piano concertos, basically. I think it's the Warsaw Philharmonic that you play with and stuff. So it's a great orchestra. Yeah, first time a Canadian one. So... Guy from Montreal won. So now the U.S. and Canada are tied for all-time Chopin piano competition wins with U.S. also having just one win with Garrett Olson back in the 80s. Yeah, so his name is Bruce Liu. America didn't do very well this time. There weren't very Americans in the final round, if, if any, actually. Yeah, I don't think there were. But yeah, no, it's funny when you look at the winners of the Chopin competition throughout history. I think, I think the Soviet Union still has the biggest lead. <laughs> yep. Even more than Russia. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's going to stay that way. 
It's the same with World Chess Championships. Yeah, exactly. It's like, like yeah. chess grandmasters. Yeah, the Soviet Union yeah. is never going to be topped by any country, yeah. <laughs> past, past, present, or future. Yeah, including Russia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, I'm curious what your thoughts are. I thought it was interesting. So we've talked before about about our opinions on music competitions. Yeah, we have. Yeah. We can we can put a link in the show notes for people who are curious about that. It was pretty quick, if I remember correctly. But I was kind of like I said, poking around and, and listening to a few people here and there. And I, I was doing this without knowing who had won. I, I was very purposefully doing that to try to... I, I do this with competitions sometimes where um, I, I don't pay attention to the results. And then I kind of just listen to people playing and see if I can find a, mm. find a favorite. You know, look, all these people are brilliant. They're pretty much just yeah. as good as each other, I think. It's not a matter of technical or even musical competence. So what I'm really looking for is is someone that I my ear immediately latches onto. When I find myself like pausing on the sort of the clicking of the next link and I find myself just listening, that's when I know that I'm onto someone special. In in this case, I you know, I looked up the winner afterwards and it was on on Bruce Liu that I, I actually wow. um, stopped. So my, my intuitions were were right or I mean or the jury's intuitions were right as well. But <laughs> yeah, definitely the latter. Yeah, yeah. But um, like Schreeder did. That's, yeah. <laughs> the thing that I thought was interesting was I started off by watching the final rounds, and I couldn't really tell people that much apart. This is kind of a, a problem with competitions in general. Where so for people who don't know, it tends to be that like in earlier rounds you play more sort of solo and like recital kind of repertoire. And then in the final round, you usually play like a concerto with the orchestra. And it's usually like one of the major concertos of the repertoire. In this case, it's obviously the Chopin concerto. But I find that it's harder to tell the sort of individual personality of a player in that context. There are fewer decisions that you can make when you're sort of in front of this behemoth being, right? Um, And you have a conductor. And like the the sort of intricacies of the music are harder to to really stake your, your ground on. I really could not tell them apart, but I went to the earlier rounds and I was hearing them play sort of the, the, the ballads and the, the fantasies and the etudes and stuff. And I immediately, I immediately latched on to, to Bruce Liu as someone who's like very special and interesting. Just the way that, I think I was hearing him play the E flat major, is it a, is it a ballad or something? That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, no, you're probably right. Because I think the blods, right? Or like the nocturnes, your artistic decisions are so apparent, right? Yeah. Just like the, even the smallest ones you make. Cause it's, and especially with the music of Chopin, where it's just so pure, I guess. Even if you take the tempo slightly different, it's very obvious. You know, um, how you slow down this measure is very obvious. And the way you, you articulate notes is also very obvious. So yeah, it's an interesting point where... You can only take so many liberties when you're working with a conductor in an orchestra, right? It's, yeah. It's, uh, you have to kind of you know, fit in with each other. But if it's just you on the piano, you know, the show is yours and you can do 
whatever you want that day of that performance and that's what goes down so yeah that's yeah. a good point and before people ju- jump on my throat i i'm aware that the final round is with an orchestra because as we've said before competitions are essentially they're very high caliber like professional recruitment so yeah these people are gonna be engaged to play with orchestra so it makes sense that the final round is with an orchestra because you want to know how yeah. well someone can play a concerto. These people are all going to have great careers as recitalists and et cetera, et cetera. But only a few of them are going to have international careers as concerto soloists, right? Mm, and right, that, that's right. what this competition is testing for. So it makes sense yeah. that in some ways that it's the final round. But it is interesting to me that someone's real sort of the, the core of their musicianship is actually apparent from from earlier rounds. And I wonder yeah. if the jury actually takes that into account, you know, because they are hearing yeah. them all through the all through the thing. So I don't know. It's something to think about. What's your view in general of the music of Chopin? I'm ambivalent about it. I know that he. Yeah, he's, I think that's how you've always been. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe I could be wrong, but is he to you uh, how how Bach is to me? Someone, someone that you are very uh, much obsessed by? Maybe not to like some of Bach. I just um. So there's a few things I respect about Chopin. I love how he, he only wrote piano music. If you don't, I mean, he yeah. wrote the orchestral parts for his symphonies i guess but Barely. i mean for, for his sorry for, for his piano concerto it's not not symphonies um yeah but that's it he just wrote for piano he's pretty unique in the classical music world to have a composer that just wrote for one instrument does he have a cello sonata does he really no i could be wrong he, hang on this one is may, worth googling may, maybe cellists like play oh some, that's some a good point uh, no, there, there's a there's a cello the sonata. Cello sonata? What the, what the hell? So, okay, I'm on the Wikipedia. So, Wikipedia on the fly again. Here we are again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The cello sonata in G minor was written by Frederick Chopin. It is one of only nine works of Chopin published during his lifetime that were written for instruments other than the piano. So, I want to know what those other eight the, pieces are. Trumpet concerto. He wrote trumpet. Yeah. <laughs> As the saying goes, I must be wearing orthopedic shoes because I stand corrected. <laughs> Oh, he has a flute and piano piece. Variations in E major. Okay. So he has three cello and piano pieces. The, there's an introduction in polonaise, grand duo, contretemps, and the cello sonata. There's a trio for violin, cello, and piano. And then there's some Polish songs that he wrote for voice and piano. So Okay, so in my own defense, maybe no one plays these pieces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Really, no, I haven't heard. I have heard the cello sonata, I think, here and there. But the other ones, never. I think it's fair to say that he's he's pretty much a piano-only composer. At least more so than any other composer. Sure. People say Chopin was the first composer to really get like a singing quality out of the piano, which I think is interesting. And of course, throughout the Romantic period and after him, the 1800s and such, there was a lot of great lyrical, quote, music written for piano. But he was one of the earlier ones to really, where, where the piano really became an instrument that... I keep saying that, but yeah, he got it to sing. Like a lot of his nocturnes, you could easily arrange for voice and piano. 
yeah. it, it, would, it worked very well. I mean, but, I played some of his nocturnes for flute and piano and flute and guitar. And if sure, it can yeah. be done on flute and something, then it can be done on voice and something. And vice yeah. versa. So. One of the reasons I love Chopin, it, he was like one of the earlier composers I got into as a kid. His music, it's it's just really beautiful. It's so so much of it has this aching melancholy beauty to it. And also, his music is used a lot in a lot of places, like a lot of movies, a lot of commercials. We keep bringing up John Jameson whiskey because they did use the Dance Macabre. They yeah. also they also used I think is Walton A minor in one of their there are whiskey commercials a few yeah. years ago which honestly is um one of the easier chopin waltzes or chopin pieces to play very accessible to younger students and stuff and it's still a very nice beautiful charming piece easy to play but to master it takes a lifetime you know <laughs> right chopin is like mozart in that way yeah and, and so oh, many yeah. of the great composers actually you know true true you have to learn how to play chopin it's its own it's own beast yeah. it's its own it, own world it's its, its own language yeah When the great fire of 1789 reached his distillery, John Jameson devised a brilliant plan. But there was simply no time. So he devised another, less brilliant plan. In the end, the not-so-brilliant plan saved the whiskey. And all of Ireland agreed. Catastrophe averted. Yeah, and I also love how he didn't write the pieces we're used to seeing. He didn't really write sonatas. He didn't. He wrote a few concertos, but not that, not that many. Only two, right? Yeah, so, only two, yeah. E minor and F yeah. minor. Yeah, but no, he wrote Nocturnes. I guess waltzes are pretty. There's been waltzes for a long time, but not the waltzes that Chopin wrote. You probably wouldn't dance to them as much as you'd dance to the great Viennese waltzes and stuff. Yeah, I think he did something to like Polish dance forms, which I think Bach did for all kinds, not just German, but for for Allemands and Courants and Sarabans, all these dance things that Bach wrote for. Um, he wrote for them in a very stylized way that was previously... I mean, not previously unheard of. Everyone was kind of doing this in the Baroque age, but I think Bach really mastered this this way of implying a dance without actually writing anything that you could dance to. It's right, hev- right. it's heavily stylized in this way, and I think Chopin did a similar thing for his mazurkas and his polonaise, his waltzes and stuff like that. So there's something interesting there. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. More and more as I get older, I, I tend to think in terms of not whether I like a kind of music, but whether you know that music likes me. That's mm-hmm. a that's the sort of Glenn Gould phrase. It's not like I dislike Chopin, but I'm not sure that I'm not sure that Chopin likes me very much. That kind of music isn't really what I'm attracted to in in music. I, I really every kind of music that I like is is 
pretty heavily contrapuntal, which is also why I have some problems with a lot of Mozart and a lot of classical era music in general. I think Mozart is at his best when he is densely contrapuntal. And I don't think Chopin really ever is contrapuntal. Would you? No. Is that a fair criticism? Yeah, yeah. hardly ever. For, for listeners who, who may not be aware, um, when I say contrapuntal, I mean that the music has several lines that are of equal value. You know, with Chopin, it's, it's a lot like what you think of with music. There's a classic sort of melody and harmony or, you know, right hand tune and left hand. Chords. Chords, yeah. Yeah. As opposed to if you think of something like a fugue by Bach, there's not really a melody. There, there are like four or five or six equal parts that are all kind of moving sort of simultaneously together, and the harmony that they create is incidental. So it's this sort of explosion of simultaneous ideas. I find that kind of music is what I keep coming back to. It's not that it, it's not like non-contrapuntal music I hate and I just can't listen to it. But I find that the music that I really end up thinking a lot about and sort of listening to in my spare time and playing and just kind of thinking about the, the ones that sort of stimulate me the most are contrapuntal pieces, which is why I love Bach so much and why I love sort of early music, like even pieces that are before the Baroque era from, mm. you know, from like, from Palestrina, say, yeah, um, yeah. Or, or Gesualdo. And then, you know, obviously Beethoven, even in Mozart, you know, I think, my like I said, my favorite parts of Mozart are when he's being sort of contrapuntal. So I think Chopin is an interesting one because there's so much that's beautiful in his music. And I, I never dislike listening to Chopin. The music is just so beautiful and, and kind of unique in a way. It's I can always immediately tell when something is Chopin, even right, if I don't know the right. piece. So there's there's so much to love there, but I think like I said, it just it just doesn't strike me the same way for you know, there's no explaining human interest, right? So yeah. So one of the questions I can have for you then, right, is because you're not the biggest romanticist, right? It, you don't no. you know, for for the romantic period of music, the eighteen hundreds, all that all that mm-hmm. jazz. Um or not jazz. <laughs> yeah. <you. laughs> um, all that very much not jazz. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time you love Tchaikovsky, who some would mm. say is like the pinnacle of the romantic period of music. Right. Yeah. So how do you explain that? <laughs> well, I mean, again, I would have to fall back on just there's no explaining human interest. With Tchaikovsky, I think it may be that he got me early. There are a couple of pieces by him that I listened to when I was mm. younger that um, just really captured my imagination. And I still really sort of vibe with Tchaikovsky in a, in a way that I don't really with Chopin. Okay, so fair. it could just be as simple as that.
what's easy to forget about Chopin is he really was ahead of his time in some respects where he brought a different angle to the space of classical music, right? Because he, he famously called his music salon music, mm. right? Where he did not want his music to be performed in concert halls. He did not think that's where it was meant to be. He respected all the great symphonies of Beethoven. But he preferred his music to be performed in very intimate living room environments, uh, you know, a concert of a crowd of 20 tops or something, right? So the problem with Chopin and why I think you might li- might dislike it at first or some people just aren't big fans of it is just how bombastic it's treated and performed. And again, we have a whole competition that's all about Chopin, <laughs> which he would have despised, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, where, yeah, he thought his music should be displayed in very small, intimate environments. And his, his music does have that, yeah, an intimate quality to it. His music is, even when it's loud or chromatic or intense or something it's still you feel like you're you're the only person in in the audience when you're listening to it i think at least i think you're onto something there i think that's a lot of that's a lot of my ambivalence about chopin is just it's just not played in the right context it's so often played in competitions and recitals and the music of chopin has taken on a life of its own that i'm not sure that chopin would sign off on i think if we were sitting in a lounge or a salon you know yeah. Uh, and and the nocturnes were playing in the in the background, that would be utterly charming. And think of when he lived in the early 1800s. That was a pretty radical idea. I mean, Eric Satie, 80 years later, you know, kind of, kind of approached his music the same way, but well before the era of impressionism and all all that intimate music you might call it. In the era where everyone's trying to search for how to write the great symphony and stuff, Chopin just took the night and day opposite approach of Berlioz and Mendelssohn and Schumann, all those guys at the same time. Rossini. Music in that era was becoming as big as possible and the shows were even bigger. Operas were bigger. But again, Chopin, just just a piano. He said that's all you need, a piano and a crowd of two and you're you're good. Yeah, that aspect of Chopin I really do vibe with. Maybe because of that too, I always think it's interesting how Chopin was some of the first music, and I think literally the very first music set to motion picture. Oh, really? Yeah, with the Lumiere brothers. So, you know, the inventors of, what do you call it? The the film reel, the video camera, the yeah. the motion picture um, <laughs> in well, the 1890s, I think early 1890s or so. You can't even call them movies, so like, you know, a minute and a half long. The very first motion pictures, and it was literally that, right? It was, they had like a picture frame for like a painting, and they had a, you know, the painting moved. That was the motion picture. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I forget what it's called, but the very first film ever, it's basically just filming everyday life around Paris for like a couple minutes. And it's set to one of the Chopin waltzes, I believe. I forget which one. But oh, I didn't realize that. Chopin, yeah. That, so, that's a good distinction to have. Yeah, I always thought that's kind of interesting. Also with Chopin too, again, kind of unique because he is Polish through and through, but he lived most of his career in Paris because he had to flee his homeland because I forget, I forget what historical... No, Poland's had it pretty rough throughout the past few hundred years, so <laughs> I, forget, I forget who it was this time, but... Yeah. <laughs> being in the geographical middle of Europe is not easy, so... Yeah. But yeah, so he had to flee, and famously, right, his heart is buried in, in Poland, but his body is buried in Paris. Yeah. So, is is um, he buried at, at Père Lachaise? Yeah, yeah, okay, the yeah. famous cemetery in yeah. Paris. You know, well, Oscar Wilde is Oscar there. Oscar Wilde right? is there. Yeah. I mean, so many people. It's hard to even. Yeah, tourists are there too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if only they could yeah. be buried, but not there. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I think that's kind of cool too because he was. Uh, I mean, his you know mazurkas and stuff, all this stuff. It's like 
Polish through and through. I mean, there's nothing French about it. But I do think there's a French sort of pre-impressionistic, pre-Eric Satie, right? Pre-Debussy. There's sort of that flavor in his music uh, that you can't unhear after you start thinking about it. Like, you could mistakenly call it French and people would understand. Yeah, totally. I love the way that he he achieves a kind of a very pianistic virtuosity in his writing, but it's not it's not bombastic at all. It is very pianistic, and I mean that in a good way, and it is very yeah. virtuosic, but it's not the kind of virtuoso writing that you associate with someone like Liszt or mm. on the violin side, some, someone like Paganini, right? Yeah, it's different. It's more right, right. It's more intimate. It's more um, it's more the virtuosity is in the touch, maybe, and yeah, it does it does have this. French flavor to it. That is, it sounds like it has intimations of Debussy and Satie even. It is very forward, forward-looking, forward I would say, in some ways. Though he, he is in some ways a, a sort of arch-classicist as well, right? Yeah. His forms are very structured. It, right. it, it sounds very loose, but it is sort of tightly structured music. And you can't really, you can't really have your way with it. To contrast it with Bach, I'm not sure that there are that many ways to play Chopin well. There's a way that there's like a sound that you have to tap into. And maybe that's why it's good to have a Chopin competition. Because yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a, a good... It's a measurable sort of... It's a measurable thing, yeah. you have to get across, yeah. Again, to contrast on the extreme end with someone like Bach, where you see people like, you know, jazzing it up and playing it on like electric bass and just doing all sorts of crazy stuff with it on synthesizers and all this, you know. That would not work with Chopin. It would not work with Chopin. There, <laughs> all, there's yeah. very much like a... A thing you have to tap into with Chopin, and it's it's super rare that people actually do it. He was the first composer to really understand the the colors possible in a piano. I guess Beethoven did as well. His piano sonatas, especially his later ones, really tapped into the different sounds you can get out of a piano and the different registers with different articulations and and how you use the pedal and stuff. But Chopin, yeah, I think he really was the first to sort of turn the piano into almost like a mini orchestra and really just understand. Yeah, the colors possible. Yeah. And that's why his music, I think, it can work on some instruments like flute and guitar and stuff, but it's still like it, you can almost tell it was, origi- it was originally written for piano. I, I think you'd even agree with that. Yeah. Right. It just, I mean, there's the colors and all that too, but there's also something in the interplay between the right and the left hand. Yeah. Yeah. Where even if you play a nocturne for flute and guitar, on some level, you can't quite do it justice because I think the real beauty of um, of a real great Chopin player comes in the way that they just their timing is just ever so slightly not off but off in a good way between their right and their left hands there's just a kind yeah. of in- interplay between when you put down the beat and where you play the melody right where you where you put down the chord and where you play the melody that kind of timing is is all that's like the whole thing between like a good Chopin player and a great Chopin player. And you kind of need, I think you kind of need to be in control of both hands to do that, to do that absolutely perfectly, right? You can do it yeah. fine enough with multiple people, but to really make it sing in the way that, that I've heard some great Chopin people play, you know, I think you need to be, you need to be in full control of, of both hands. It's, right. a, it's a conversation with yourself in a way that even a Bach fugue, I mean, you can do some stuff with timing that's, you know, between your your left and right hands, but there's something that's different there. You could arrange a Bach fugue for a quartet, and I think it works just as well. Right, right. Because the timing doesn't need to be off in exactly the same kind of way. With Bach and in, with Baroque in general, I mean, we've talked about this before, but you know, there's a lot of freedom within the beat, but the the beat itself is in a sort of mm. it's in a it's in like a groove, right? It's, there's like a pocket yeah. there, and the beat is unimpeachable. 
with Chopin, that's not the case. Yeah. There, there's there's kind of freedom around the beat that that I think if we if we spread it around between too many players, it becomes a muddled kind of mess, yeah. right? Right, and and right, and even just with a solo piano player playing Chopin, there's a wrong way to play Chopin by screwing <laughs> up that beat, right? There's right, right. <laughs> like okay, Free, I'll, freedom I'll does not mean anarchy. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I'll just say it. Like I do think, hands down, the best Chopin interpreter ever is Christian Zimmerman. Hmm. He is just. I mean, not only is he just one of the great pianists of the 20th century and of history and stuff, but his Chopin is just so great. And okay, I'll throw Mauricio Pliny up there as well. His Chopin is really fantastic. But but Christian Zimmerman, he just gets it. And I mean, and of course, he's been all of his Chopin recordings and stuff, right, are all on are on YouTube, and some of them are filmed really well for the 70s and 80s, <laughs> which is which is. And he's still he's still doing great things. He's a very active pianist. He's a bit older now, but no, he's he's wonderful and. Also such yeah. a great educator. I recently discovered some of his master classes for stuff I didn't even know he played, like the Rachmaninoff concertos. He's so um energetic in like such a charming way in his Polish accent. He, he just really loves music and which I think is uh, un- underrated. And yeah. and that's the thing I think with Chopin too. It's it's very rewarding to play as a pianist. If I go to any piano in any hotel lobby in the Western world, at least. I sit down and play the famous second nocturne in E-flat major, at least a few people will stop and listen. Yeah. Right. It is just, it's very, almost accessible. Like, it's very, just very beautiful, romantic in every definition of that word. Yeah. Music. And, and as a pianist, it's, you know, especially when I was a younger piano student and stuff, it's just really rewarding, satisfying music to play. And, and, yeah. and that's not a bad thing. One of the things I kind of think is charming and nice is, uh, I mean, he's he's Poland's composer, right? There are countries that just have their composer. Norway has Grieg, Finland has Sibelius, but yeah, he just it's Chopin International Airport in Warsaw. That's that. Yeah, yeah, they really have owned him, but but good. Yeah. Um, with I good. would, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, the French try to every here and there. They they do try really? to own Chopin, which which is yeah. funny. Yeah, I mean, I guess if I. Had to pick one piece of Chopin. Yeah, his fourth ballade is gorgeous. And uh, yeah, just fantastic. Extremely hard to play. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful piece and such. And if you ever saw the Roman Polanski movie, The Pianist, most of the music, if not all the music in that is Chopin. Yeah.
I guess if I had to pick a piece by Chopin, it would be uh, his songs for voice and piano, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Is, that, is that right? Is that right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so in 2025, for the Chopin competition, they should have a vocal, <laughs> <laughs> a vocal category. <laughs> they should hire a, a competition singer, and then the final round is the contestants have to um, have to accompany the the singer. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd be so down. I think I think that'd be fantastic. That would be that would um, be great. Yeah. No, yeah. but uh, in in all seriousness, though, actually, um, I really like his um his piano sonata. Actually, the, the number number three, I think, in B minor. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's a cool one. Yeah. That's that's probably one of his more his more famous ones. It's certainly the most often played of his sonatas, right? Yeah. Also, something I meant to kind of bring up earlier. Yeah, you did bring up list, and it is kind of funny to get into the. There are some more fabricated musical rivalries out there, like <laughs> Mozart and Salieri. That was kind of a lot more fabricated than fact uh, for the movie Amadeus, because they were actually close friends uh, from historical accounts, at least. Salieri taught Mozart's kids piano and composition and stuff, and they they were actually I don't know if they're BFFs for life, but but <laughs> but, but they were you know. They were colleagues. Yeah. Let's say that. They were not... They were amicable colleagues. Yeah. Yeah. Chopin and Liszt, though, from from what I understand, were actually fierce rivals. (laughs) Huh. And, well, it sort of makes sense, too, because they were both very prolific pianists and piano composers who couldn't be more different, had very different objectives and ideas for what piano music and classical music should be, right? So... They're just polar opposites. Chopin, as we said, was the very salon music, very the the very intimate music. Where Liszt was traveling Europe as the great piano virtuoso with these bombastic, ridiculous, virtuosic piano works he had performed <laughs> in front of huge concert halls and stuff. So they they couldn't be more different. Between I have to say, for all my ambivalence about Chopin, between Team Chopin and Team Liszt, I'm definitely Team Chopin. Yeah, I I would say the same. I, yeah. I do think Liszt wrote some cool stuff, especially for orchestra. He, he wrote some yeah. He he wrote some decent things, but yeah, no, I I I find myself drawn and listening to Chopin uh, much more than Liszt. Yeah, they actually had run-ins in in real life, not just music. I believe so. I believe so because <laughs> they were working and performing and composing at the same time. And I think the they were always like asked to like comment on each other's music and stuff in the in the press back yeah. then and stuff. So. I, from what I understand, yeah, I mean, Liszt was hailed as the great virtuoso and composer of that era, and Chopin didn't quite get that much love. <laughs> he was kind of always yeah. broke, right? I believe so. I believe so. Yeah, and um, that'll make you resent someone if you're. Yeah, if you're, right. Um, the same was sort of true with um, Stravinsky and um, Schoenberg. Hundred yeah. years later, Stravinsky was hailed as like the great innovative composer that was stretching art to its limits and groundbreaking you know every work after after the next but Schoenberg was seen as kind of like the outcast and didn't ever get much love but he got the kind of love that you get when you're 
when you're doing something very sort of esoteric, which is that a small amount of people revere you passionately and everyone else kind of thinks you're a weirdo. Yeah, well, let's just say, you know, the day after Schoenberg died, Stravinsky started writing atonal music. Are you aware of a guy named Hershey Felder? No. He's a Canadian pianist. He's brilliant. He is so unique. He kind of, sadly, I don't think much of his stuff is available online because what he does is he does like a two hour, two, maybe a bit longer than a two hour concert, but it's all about one composer. And he's like, so it's like a, almost like a play, but he's <laughs> the only one. It's like a solo play and performance on like a set on a stage that he does. But he's a fantastic pianist. He's an official Steinway artist. And he also studied drama his whole life. So he'll, he has a whole series of shows he puts on. One is The Life and Music of Chopin. One's The Life and Music of Tchaikovsky. One is of Irving Berlin. He does one on Debussy. Anyway, he is just phenomenal. I wonder why he doesn't produce it and put it on YouTube or something. Because it would hurt his tickets. And sometimes oh, he's been streaming yeah. it live. Okay. And stuff. So I think because that's like the only show he does. He spends I a see. few years producing each one and stuff. Yeah. And then goes on tour with it. But he's phenomenal. Tours all over the US and Europe doing these shows. And I think there's clips available on YouTube. I should just send you. Well, the show was a huge success. Y'all know what happens when you have a huge success. Whole world comes calling. Hollywood came calling again, promising me that the mechanical means had improved. Well... If I was going to go back to Hollywood and risk disaster yet again, at the very least, I was going to get paid. So I made a deal that's never before happened, still hasn't happened since. Money up front! <laughs> and then 10% of the gross before anyone even touches a penny. Apparently they wanted me badly enough because they agreed. However, I did later find out that at the time that I made the deal, no one in Hollywood thought for one second that movie musicals would ever do any business at all. <laughs> well, for this return to Hollywood, the first fellow that I was paired up with was a gentleman whose original screen test read like so. Can't act. Can't sing. Balding. And dances a little. His name was Fred Astaire. <laughs> anyway, he's brilliant man, brilliant entertainer and pianist and stuff and artist. But the coolest fact about him is he lives full-time in Paris in Chopin's old apartment. Oh, <laughs> so, that's cool. And he's married to his wife, I think, is also Canadian. She's the former prime minister of Canada. I forget who Whoa. it is. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, no, he, he's, he's an impressive guy in many ways. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, Chopin's old Parisian apartment. How badass is that? That is pretty cool. That's, that's the real reason I brought him up. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's pretty cool, man. It's worth just listening to this thing. Because I, I went to this one live. It was um, The Life and Music of Irving Berlin. And it, was, hmm. where, it was super fascinating. Where, where did you see him? It was here in San Francisco. Oh, cool, at, like, cool. one of the performing arts centers. And so he takes this thing. Globally. Oh, oh yeah, he t t tours around Hell Europe yeah. with it and all around the U.S. And, That's pretty sweet. And, um, and then I saw one he did on the life and music of 
George Gershwin. That was super fascinating. Really he chose a good shtick because he's not going to run out of interesting composers. He's not going to run out so of composers so true. with interesting lives, rather. Yeah. Oh, dude, he did one on Bernstein. Ooh. It was so good. He does such a good impression of Leonard Bernstein too throughout the whole thing. It's that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. He like down down to like the mannerisms and stuff. It's like wow, that looks sort of like a younger Lenny. Yeah. Huh. And there that it was this producer who was threatening to turn me into some kind of Hollywood movie star. But neither of our film careers worked out, so we quickly came back to New York. Felicia to pursue Broadway and television, and I to conduct for whoever would have me. Well, when we arrived back in New York, Felicia started an affair with Dick Hart, a drunk of a stage actor whom I happily called the Drunken Dick. But that's when I realized that I needed her. I needed the organization. I needed the logical outcome. I needed a family. Yeah, anyways, but Chopin's old apartment. That's pretty sweet. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to live in Rossini's old palace, right? Because... Apparently Rossini was like uh, like the richest composer ever, like in his time. Huh. I didn't know money. that, but that's not surprising at all. Yeah, yeah. He had like an estate, like a whole like <laughs> mansion and like vineyards and all this. He was like the John Williams of his day. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and the Italian hills were the Beverly Hills.